Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Max Lugavere is the New York Times bestselling author of Genius Foods and one of the most respected voices in nutrition today. He's back on the show to discuss his latest must-read cookbook titled Genius Kitchen. Over 100 easy and delicious recipes to make your brain sharp, body strong, and taste buds happy. Max, welcome back. Jason, it's good to see you, my friend. It's been too long. It has been too long. It's been two years. It's been a pandemic. It's been a pandemic, which is becoming an endemic, and hopefully will just be a distant memory. But at any rate, great to see you. Great to have you back. Congratulations on Genius Kitchen. and. You know, you dedicated the book to your mom, Kathy, and, you know, for those who aren't familiar, let, let's start there, the story of your mom and how she has inspired you, you know, with your books and with all of your work. So let's start there. Absolutely. My mom is my why. She motivates me every day. She's the inspiration behind all of my work. And the reason for that is that at a young age, she became very sick. She developed a rare form of dementia called Lewy body dementia, which is akin to having both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease at the same time. It's a progressive incurable condition. And she was first diagnosed, well, she was first diagnosed with Lewy body dementia in her early sixties, but in her late fifties was when she began to show the initial symptoms. And at that point, that was like a singularity in my life, a point of no return where there had been things that I was passionate about career endeavors that I had, that I had considered embarking on. But when my mom became sick, those all became distant memories. And I just, I became obsessed with trying to understand to the best of my ability, why this happened to her. If there was anything that could be done from a disease modification standpoint with regard to diet and lifestyle that could help her and in tandem with that, because I now, I recognized at that point that I had a risk factor for dementia. What could be done to prevent it from ever happening to myself? So I ended up going from doctor's office to doctor's office with her. And I experienced what I've come to call diagnose and adios in nearly every instance. Diet and lifestyle was never brought up once. And so I took it upon myself at that point to become a citizen investigator. I was a journalist at the time. So I had a certain skill set that allowed me to look into the medical literature and I was a quasi public figure having just come off a run at current TV, which is, I think when we met, which gave me the access to be able to talk to some of the researchers whose, whose work I was reading. And that began about 10 years ago. And my mom, sadly, three years ago passed away. And so the tragedy of her health really, it, it, as I mentioned, it motivates me every day to try to uncover new ways of living more healthfully and averting these kinds of chronic conditions, non-communicable conditions that now seem to affect most people worldwide. And my mom got to see my first book, Genius Foods, when it came out, which I was really excited about. She saw the book, she saw me working on it, she saw that it was successful. And Genius Foods to me was really like, a, I wrote it to serve as a, nutri a nutritional care manual for the human brain. But my new book, which is, you know, I'm so excited for it. My mom, really, one of the things that I love to do with her was cook together. It's like one of the ways that we bonded. And every time I would come from LA, which is where I lived for a lot of my 
for many of the years after college, after graduating from college, I would come back and we would cook meals together and we would eat together. And she taught me actually a lot of what I know about cooking and many of her favorite dishes are featured in the book. So to me, it's sort of in a way coming full circle. And it's, uh, it's I guess, my way of, of ensuring that the, the tragedy that she endured, that my family endured, wasn't in vain, that there's some sort of like meaning that it's been transmuted into. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it is a tragedy. And unfortunately, cognitive decline is on the rise precipitously. You know, you talk about in the book, and this has been publicized in many places that Alzheimer's is the new type three diabetes. And so at the highest level, what do you think is going so wrong? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's many things. It's multifactorial, right? We have risk factors that are immutable. Our gender, for example, we can't change that. And women are at twice the risk of men for developing Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, we can't change our age either. Age is still the number one risk factor. We also can't change our genes. But all that being said, the primary, the other major risk factors are completely modifiable. And these include our metabolic health. So our, the ability of our bodies to create energy, our fitness levels, our cardiorespiratory fitness play an important role in preventing early mortality and preventing neurodegeneration. This is something that falls within our control. Our diets in the sense that our diets provide our brains with important building blocks that are required to create healthy new brain cells as we get older as well as protector molecules that help protect our brains against stress, which is inevitable for every human today. And so these are the factors that fall under our control. And so given that the medical literature is showing that we do have a degree of agency, we do have a degree of say when it comes to our cognitive health, I think the best time to intervene is now, because we know that we know that many, we know that chronic disease begins decades, oftentimes before the presentation of symptoms. And this is certainly true for Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia. And it's also true of Parkinson's disease, which is actually more closely related with the condition that my mom had than Alzheimer's disease. And just to give you a sense, Parkinson's disease, by the time you show up to your neurologist's office with your first symptom, half of the neurons in the substantia nigra portion of the brain, the dopamine producing neurons involved in movement are already dead. With Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's disease begins in the brain by some its estimates in, in, in the second decade of life um, for people that are genetically prone to the condition. So knowing that, what can we do, right? Well, we now have some really great evidence coming out showing us that a diet and lifestyle modification, a diet that's more akin to a Mediterranean-style diet can help protect our brains. Conversely, the standard American diet is the polar opposite of a Mediterranean diet. And most people today are consume are, are ingesting calories that come by and large from what are called ultra processed foods, foods that drive inflammation. They pro provide no nutritional benefit other than providing a calorie dense source of energy. And they drive their own overconsumption, which is at the literal foundation of the obesity epidemic, right? These ultra processed foods that drive their own consumption. So we have that working against us. And we know that when looking at studies like the finger study, which is a study that I often cite, it's one of the most important studies in our field because 
It's the first long-term randomized controlled trial that shows that a dietary intervention can actually not only slow cognitive decline and prevent its onset, but improve the way that our brains work, even when we're in advanced age and with at least one risk factor for developing dementia. So that's the FINGER trial. We also know from another important seminal clinical trial called the SPRINT MIND trial, that by keeping our blood pressure healthy, and we can talk about ways of doing this, we can significantly prevent mild cognitive impairment, which is a prodrome for dementia. It's often called pre-dementia. This trial showed that subjects were able to do this pharmacologically, so they used blood pressure lowering medications. But we know, thanks to really high quality meta-analyses that are coming out, that exercise is just as effective as medication when it comes to normalizing our blood pressure. So these studies, right, randomized controlled trials, the kinds of trials re required to prove cause and effect are quite literally showing us that our cognitive destiny is a choice that we make. Amen. And we agree and our listeners agree that food is medicine. And, you know, the book is called Genius Kitchen, but it started with genius food. So let's start there before we start diving into specific nutrients and specific subcategories of food. You know, you touched on the Mediterranean diet, you know, in terms of, you know, if someone's listening and they're saying to themselves, all right, I'm concerned about cognitive decline, runs in my family. Maybe I'm a 20 something, maybe it's a 40 something, but you know what? I should pay attention. I'm going to go to my local Whole Foods market or Trader Joe's or, or whatever it might be locally. What are some of those like roughly, you know, must haves on, you know, the genius kitchen shopping list that, you know, if you're going to do 80%, if you're going to we've lived by the 80, 20 rule, yeah. if you're going to, what, what should be in that 80%? That's such a good question. Actually, one of the, one of the studies that motivated me to write genius foods was a study that came out from Tufts university that found that people who adhere to the advice to just eat all things in moderation actually end up eating a lot more junk food. They consume a lot more sugar-sweetened beverages. They eat a lot more desserts. The healthiest people buy a narrower range of foods, and they just buy those foods on loop. So what are the foods that I would recommend buying on loop for cognitive health? Well, extra virgin olive oil is, in my view, medicine for the brain. It's also a staple of the Mediterranean diet, where they use it not only to cook with, a lot of people have this misconception that you can't cook with extra virgin olive oil, but you, I, they, it's used as a sauce. It's used to create desserts. I mean, when was the last time you saw extra virgin olive oil used in a dessert, right? In my book, Genius Kitchen, I actually have a sugar-free extra virgin olive oil ice cream, which is out of this world. It's dairy-free, as well as an extra virgin olive oil almond cake, which is another one of my favorite recipes in the book. We know that it provides... It's a rich source of monounsaturated fat, which is the healthiest fat to consume liberally, more so than saturated fats, more so than polyunsaturated fats, particularly when sourced from grain and seed oils, which we know the American diet is now saturated with. And we also know that it has powerful anti-inflammatory capabilities. It's as anti-inflammatory as low-dose ibuprofen, thanks to a compound in extra virgin olive oil called oleocanthal. So... I'm a huge fan of extra virgin olive oil. As I use it as the primary fat. I use it more than I use butter. I don't really use a ton of butter or ghee or tallow or any of these fats that paleo advocates are obsessed with. I think extra virgin olive oil from an evidence base, from the hierarchy of evidence, seems to be the most beneficial. Animal trials, in vitro studies, randomized control trials, observational studies, it's, it really is powerful. I also am a big advocate of the consumption of Plants and animal foods, so whole plants, dark leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables, whole fruits, 
I think plants to me are the ultimate biohackers. They provide nutrients that are not always endogenous to our own biology because they come from a different operating system, right? But they do stimulate our bodies to up level and become more resilient thanks to the hormetic stress that some of the plant, some of the compounds generated by plants stimulate. And we can talk about polyphenols, we can talk about flavanols, we can talk about certain compounds like those found in cruciferous vegetables, glucosinolates, which help to spur our body's own detox pathways. These are all super important. And a plant that's grown under more vigorous conditions, more stressed conditions, imparts the vigor that 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 plant develops onto us, which I think is a really beautiful illustration of the symbiosis of living things, the circle of life. It, it really is quite amazing. Researchers have shown that when we look at various plants and you know we can use dark leafy greens, that when people eat a large bowl of dark leafy greens every day, when they set that as a general guideline, um, and the bowl doesn't have to be massive, about a cup and a half to two cups of dark leafy greens is all they saw in this study, that People who do this have brains that perform up to 11 years younger. Now, you could argue healthy user bias, people who are eating salads regularly, right, are probably doing other things in their diets and lifestyles. But we know that we know that dark leafy greens are rich in various nutrients that support brain health. So whether we're talking about arugula, which is a rich source of nitrates, which our oral bacteria reduce to nitrite, and then increase nitric oxide in our blood vessels, that increases blood flow all throughout the body, really important for maintaining cardiovascular health healthy blood pressure, which we talked about, and even sexual performance. I mean, nit nitric oxide is, is, is major. Kale, you have, there are so many haters of kale in the wellness space these days, which is- It's just, so, it's just Dave Asprey. It's, it's just, just Dave. Dave I Asprey. love Dave. It's really just Dave. It's but just we Dave. love him anyway. Every time I post about kale, he comes over. And I mean, we're friends, but he, you know, <laughs> he loves to give me shit. But I genuinely enjoy kale occasionally. And, and I like knowing that when I eat kale, that kale is one of the if not the most concentrated source of carotenoids, lutein, and zeaxanthin, which help protect neural tissue, both in your eyes and your brain. Really helpful in terms of helping prevent age-related macular degeneration, but we also know that lutein and zeaxanthin um, concentrate in the brain and help prevent cognitive decline, help improve the way that our brains work in the here and now. So there was a randomized control trial at the University of Georgia that found that when they gave college students supplemental lutein and zeaxanthin, the dose was, I think, about 34 milligrams per day. Compared to controls, they saw an, about a 20% improvement in their visual processing speed. So that's the ability of your brain, like reaction time, right? S driving safety or video games, playing sports, athleticism, picking up something as it's falling on your kitchen counter, right? We all rely on visual processing speed. And these carotenoids have been shown to, at the very least, boost that. So there are many good things in dark leafy greens right there. Then... I like to always balance my recommendations out with a good nutrient-dense animal product. So I guess for me, I love talking about the benefits of grass-finished red meat consumption. I like talking about red meat in part because I think it's controversial. But to me, it is a cognitive superfood. Um, it's a rich and highly bioavailable source of many nutrients that we know are important for brain health and mental health. Drew Ramsey talks about this all the time. But zinc, vitamin B12, choline, creatine. Not to mention the fact that animal protein is the highest biological value protein that we find in nature, right? And protein is incredibly important for helping maintain lean mass as we age, which should be mission critical for anybody who wants to age well. So right off the bat, those are two, those are three foods that I think, three categories of foods that 
illustrate to some degree my dietary philosophy and then we can we can pick those apart and i can talk about other foods well well said you you picked up some of my favorite vitamins minerals and nutrients as well i'm going to bring it back to where you started olive oil and you you mentioned smoke point cooking and you also have a chapter in the book or subhead in the book about the ominous oils Yes. And so let's spend a little time on oils because if we think about ultra process, I think most people get it, but I think the oil conversation can be somewhat confusing. So let's spend a minute on the ominous oils and then let's segue to the oils that, you know, you believe to be healthy and safe for cookie cooking and some of the misconceptions around smoke point. Yeah. So. Actually, the oil conversation is controversial because there are many in the medical and nutritional orthodoxy that are still very much in favor of using grain and seed oils like canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil. And the reason for that is that they're unable to see past the fact that those oils do dramatically lower levels of LDL cholesterol as compared to saturated fats. But so do monounsaturated fat dominant oils like extra virgin olive oil and avocado oil. The key difference being that extra virgin olive oil and avocado oil are chemically very stable. They're somewhat more saturated than polyunsaturated fat dominant oils like canola oil, corn oil, and soybean oil. And this has real world relevance, right? Because these oils, we're not creating them ourselves. They're pressed and they're processed and they're stored in plastic bottles that are subject to who knows what kind of conditions as they're shipped to us in our various locales. And so that the storage, the exposure to heat, to oxygen, to light catalyzes the degradation of these oils. And they've shown in studies that commercially available grain and seed oils do have very high levels of oxidation already in them by the time they, by the time we unpack them from our grocery bags, right? And then we heat them in restaurants. They are heated and reheated. They're kept in fryers, which I actually think is the most pernicious source of these oils in the in the modern diet fried foods because the oils are french french fries exactly exactly the dose makes the poison right so if you're just ingesting a little bit here and there i think it's probably fine it's fine i wouldn't be too concerned about it i know that i do when i eat in restaurants because those are the kinds of oils that restaurants use but when we're talking about fried foods those oils are in those fryers for hours if not days restaurants are notorious cost cutters and those oils, when they're subject to such high heat and they're kept at that temperature, they degrade, they oxidize, they generate various oxidative byproducts like certain aldehydes, which we know are toxic to our mitochondria, are mutagenic, i.e. are carcinogenic. And the processing of these oils alone generates a small but significant amount of trans fats, which we know there's no safe consumption. There's no safe level of trans fat consumption. That's why they were banned in the form of partially hydrogenated oils a couple of years ago by the FDA, but they still appear in the food supply in the form of these grain and seed oils. So I think it's worth avoiding them for that reason. They are, they fuel our body's inflammation pathways. They, we know that they integrate, they get integrated into our tissue. The, our adipocyte concentration of linoleic acid, which is the primary fatty acid found in these grain and seed oils has increased by over two twofold over the past 50 years alone. And that's because our diets have just become awash in these kinds of fats. But from an evidence standpoint, I mean, that's what's so paradoxical is that the medical and nutritional establishment 
loves to talk about the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. And when you go to the Mediterranean region of the world, they're not using any of those grain and seed oils. They're not using canola. They're using extra virgin olive oil. And so that's why I recommend that people clear their kitchens of these grain and seed oils and they make extra virgin olive oil. And as a close second best, avocado oil, the primary fat. I'm also not a big advocate of excessive consumption of butter, which I think is controversial in our community. And that's because butter, dairy products in general, are a very concentrated source of saturated fat. However, most dairy products, actually the consumption of full fat dairy is associated with better cardiovascular health. And the reason for that is that dairy fat, even though it's predominantly um, saturated fatty acids that dairy contains, the fats are bound by a compound called milk fat globule membrane. It's basically this encapsulate this bubble that encapsulates dairy triglycerides and is full of actually really healthy compounds, phospholipids like phosphatidylcholine and sphingomyelin, which supports brain health. But butter, the churning of cream disrupts milk fat globule membrane. And that's why you'll see um, there have been a few clinical trials that have shown that butter causes an increase in LDL, whereas heavy cream doesn't. And they both start out right at the same as the same origin product. So butter to me is an indulgence and I use it sometimes, but, but again, all roads seem to point to extra virgin olive oil. So yeah, that's sort of my 30,000 foot take on the, on, on the fats that are fantastic and the oils that are more ominous. I love it. And to unpack the cooking piece. So let's spend a little time about cooking because you know, a lot of people will say high heat olive oil, no good. Can we talk about heat, which oils we should use, you know, how, in terms of extra virgin olive oil, how high is too high? What other oils, whether it be ghee, avocado, coconut, like how do you think about oils at, and cooking at home? Yeah. So great question. People have this misconception that smoke point is related to the health, the healthfulness of an oil. Grain and seed oils boast of very high smoke points. But a smoke point is not, the smoke point of an oil is not related to the point at which an oil is going to become toxic and mutagenic and harm your health. A smoke, an oil smoke point is affected mostly by non-oil products, non-fat products that are in the oil. So for example, butter has a low smoke point because it still contains trace casein and lactose. And that's what burns off in butter. And that's more of a culinary concern. Sometimes with butter, you actually want butter to brown. It's what gives foods that, that have butter in it this beautiful brown sheen, right? Ghee is a lot more pure. So ghee has a much higher smoke point than butter. It's also both butter and ghee chemically, regardless of smoke point, are very stable. And so they're not going to oxidize. But again, it's the solids in the butter that lead to its lower smoke point. And for high heat cooking, I will absolutely use butter and ghee because, again, you really want to make sure that the oils maintain their chemical integrity. And using the right oil for the job is a major leverage point in terms of doing that. Extra virgin olive oil is about 15% saturated fat, which is the most chemically stable type of fatty acid. And the rest is monounsaturated fat. So it's very chemically stable. You absolutely can cook with it. The only issue is that there are non-oil compounds in extra virgin olive oil that can burn. Some of these phytochemicals include oleopurin, oleocanthal, with a, which I've mentioned, 
And so those are the compounds that might start to smoke at a certain point, but actually those oil, those compounds, they're really powerful antioxidants. And so they further help protect the oil above and beyond its fatty acid content. This is another reason why I advise against unfiltered extra virgin olive oil. A lot of people buy unfiltered extra virgin olive oil thinking that it's actually a better, more pure option. But what you get when you get unfiltered extra virgin olive oil is you get olive remnants in the oil, which dramatically lowers its smoke point and also makes it more prone to degradation because those olive remnants are, they decrease the shelf life of oil. So you want to make sure that the oil is not unfiltered, it's filtered. But that being said, extra virgin olive oil is very safe to cook with at a, up to a temperature of about 350 or 400 degrees. And it depends the temperature actually depends on the kind of cooking that you're doing. Dry heat cooking, the, uh, the, the temperature, the smoke point is going to be a bit less. But if you're using extra virgin olive oil in a melange of vegetables and you throw the vegetables in the oven and the oven is heated to 400 degrees Fahrenheit, for example, which is generally the temperature that I like to roast veggies at, you're not going to see any issues with the extra virgin olive oil because the moistness of the vegetables are going to keep the extra virgin olive oil safe in the process. Great example, something I'm a huge fan of, and you mentioned in the book, and it just makes so much sense economically, is getting frozen veggies, defrosting them, throwing them in the oven, and you're good to go. Yeah, great way to economize, save money. One of my favorite uses of frozen veggies, I love to buy, because spinach wilts so quickly, I love to buy a bag of frozen spinach. I keep it in, my, in the freezer, and I'll just throw it frozen because it easily loosens from the bag into a pan and I'll use it to make a spinach scramble for myself sometimes. Great way to start the morning. So yeah, you mentioned the morning breakfast. Like, do you have, you know, look, starting your day on the right foot is often the key to success in health and wellness. And so do you have a go-to breakfast that you tend to go back to? A go-to breakfast, man. I, well, I love to start my day out with a protein source. That to me is my priority generally. Oftentimes I'm breaking my fast with, I'm breaking my fast after a workout. I enjoy morning fasted workouts. So what that entails for me is usually, I mean, sometimes it's eggs. Sometimes it's a scramble. I'll use four or five eggs in a scramble. Depending on calorie needs, I actually think that it's really useful to have whole eggs as well as to buy pre-separated egg whites. I Egg yolks are a cognitive multivitamin. So I'm a huge advocate of whole egg consumption. We were definitely steered in the wrong direction over the past couple of decades with regard to the fear that was instilled in us about dietary cholesterol. So, you know, egg yolks are, it's no wonder that egg yolks are rich in, in cholesterol because they literally provide everything that, that an embryo needs to develop a brain. But that being said, sometimes I'll make a scramble with two or three whole eggs and then use some egg whites just to increase the protein density, the protein concentration in that scramble. For people, especially who are on like weight loss plan, you know, I think that's a really great sort of hack. And uh, so sometimes I'll do a scramble. Other times I'll go for some kind of grass-fed beef option, whether it's a grass-fed beef burger patty, which is a really easy and quick way to, to really front load your day with some nutrient density. As I mentioned, grass-fed beef is just loaded with protein, creatine, which supports brain energy metabolism, vitamin E, and I'll eat that on a bed of dark leafy greens sometimes. I still like to eat a big salad every day, whether it's alongside my dinner or 
as part of my first meal of the day. So for me, that's, it's a mix of really high quality animal protein and, and some kind of vegetable source, whether it's roasted cruciferous vegetables or a salad. And that keeps me sated throughout the day pretty much. And I try not to eat again. I'll snack maybe midday. I'll have some whole fruit, like an apple, a protein shake, some Greek yogurt. And then I won't generally eat anything until, um, until dinner. You touched on this earlier. And as you mentioned, you're not afraid to be polarizing dairy, right? Dairy is polarizing. And there are many people in our world who agree on so much, but that's one they just don't agree on. So <laughs> how do you, and I know it's nuanced, but how do you think about dairy? I'm actually really glad you asked this because my views on dairy have evolved. I used to be one of those who I still am very deliberate about my dairy consumption. I want to make sure that it's coming from a, you know, ideally grass fed cows. It's not something that I want just thrown on my food. Like sometimes you'll go to a restaurant and you order a salad and it comes littered with, with, with cheese on top. And I usually I'll send it back if they don't say that's on it. Like I don't, you know, I like to be deliberate about my dairy consumption, but that being said, I am much more amenable to dairy these days because there's. There are a few factors that make dairy, I think, a really important health food. For one, and I'm not sponsored by the dairy industry or anything like that. I just genuinely am very impressed by the fact that dairy consistently has amongst the highest biological value protein available. Whey protein is an incredible source of protein. It's very concentrated in terms of its essential amino acid content. It's a wonderful source of leucine, very unlikely to be contaminated by heavy metals, which the same can't be said with many plant-based protein powders. So whey protein's great. Greek yogurt, I think, is one of the most economical ways of getting a really high quality protein source in the modern supermarket. I'm continually impressed that for a dollar, two dollars, you can get a cup, a serving of Greek yogurt, fat-free or full fat. And in the case of fat-free, you're getting about 19 grams of protein in a, what, 80, 90 calorie cup. It's amazing. And again, it's the highest quality protein that, that exists. With regard to full-fat dairy options like heavy cream, some certain cheeses, full-fat dairy has a number of really cool nutrients in it, whether we're talking about vitamin K2 or butyrate or CLA. I think that there's a lot of good to be had in dairy if you're not one of the many people who are dairy sensitive. And the other thing about dairy, as I mentioned, this milk fat globule membrane, when an embryo is developing, right? The organ that is responsible for probably the greatest energy need and, and greatest amount of care ultimately is the brain, right? In an embryo, the first structure to assemble is the brain. And, that, and the brain, especially in humans, undergoes unprecedented organization to the point of having very intense nutritional needs. And so if you think about what dairy is meant to do from a biological standpoint, right? It's the only food expressly designed to be a food by nature. And it's designed to feed a neonate, right? With bovine dairy, yes, it's designed to grow a calf into a cow, but it's also to provide nourishment for the brain. And so that's why I think that milk fat globule membrane is so impressive. If you're not one who's sensitive to dairy, the fact that milk fat globule membrane, which is found in full fat dairy products, contains phosphatidylcholine, contains compounds like sphingomyelin. Sphingomyelin is one of the core components of myelin. The myelin sheath is this very important insulation that surrounds your neurons and helps with nerve signal transduction. It's also 
um, what the body attacks in conditions like multiple sclerosis, right? It's actually no wonder to me that a recent study was published. The first author was Oriel Willett, whose work I've been following for some time, found that among food groups, dairy was dramatically, dairy consumption was dramatically associated with decreased risk for cognitive decline. So I think there's a, I think this is not me suggesting to go overboard with dairy consumption, certainly not if you're lactose intolerant, which I will admit 75% of the global adult population is. But if you're not dairy sensitive, I do think that it's a, it is a food worth welcoming back to the table. Well said. So something else that surprised me, vinegar. You talk about vinegar and vinegar is something, you know, in it, we talk about food all the time, whether it's on the show, your show on the web, like we talk about, you know, we, we go deep into veggies and get into sulforaphane and we get into all these nutrients and then vinegar, I'm like, well, we never talk about vinegar. So why don't we talk about vinegar and let's talk about your favorite type and how we can incorporate vinegar into our, oh man, into our routine. I love it. Well, I'm, so I generally love anything that has that vinegary acidic bite. Vinegar is like one of my favorite flavors in general. It's one of the reasons I think why I actually love salads, anything that, that has any kind of like vinegar based marinade. I just, I really like it. And it's comforting to know that vin vinegar provides some really potent health benefits. So it's actually been well known for some time now that vinegar has an anti-hyperglycemic effect. So vinegar helps disrupt enzymes that help break down starches into their constituent sugar molecules, starches and certain sugars. So if you were going to, for example, mainline pure glucose, vinegar wouldn't be able to reduce the glycemic impact of pure glucose, but very m most of the time, we're not mainlining pure glucose. We're main mainlining some type of disaccharide or polysaccharide, which are basically sugar chains, chemical chains of glucose molecules. And those chains need to be broken down before they get absorbed in our gut as sugar. And acetic acid, which is the active ingredient, I guess you could say in vinegar, helps disrupt those enzymes to the point that if you consume it with a high starch meal, like pasta, let's say, or white rice, you actually, you'll see a much lower postprandial glucose spike. So for people who struggle with issues related to their blood sugar, vinegar is one of these um, really important functional foods that's so easy to integrate into your day-to-day -day life. I mean, it's certainly an amazing, amazing in salads. People now drink vinegar in the form of kombucha certainly, which is now a couple hundred million dollar a year business worldwide. And the bite that we love when we drink kombucha is owed to the, the acetic acid that it contains, which is a bacterial fermentation byproduct. And I actually provide a recipe in my book that's just a very simple drinking vinegar that helps support digestion, can help lower blood sugar. And all it is, is basically a little bit of sparkling water or flat water, tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, some ginger, and some stevia and you throw that on ice and it's a really delicious refreshing vinegar based tonic that can have a measurable impact on your post-meal blood sugar so it's not going to affect necessarily your fasting blood sugar which is what gets measured when you go and you get a checkup but if uh, anybody listening to this is wearing a continuous glucose monitor which i know is becoming more common you'll you'll see that if you consume vinegar with a high starch meal you'll have a, a lower area under the curve for glucose as a result Vinegar has also been shown to stimulate certain pathways that are involved 
in metabolic health, like AMPK. It's been a while since I've reviewed that literature, but it does seem to have a number of really, really potent health benefits, which is why I like to have some kind of vinegar-based something uh, every day, almost. I love it. Something else you talk about in the book, herbs, and you go as far as you have a little list of herbs to hoard. So what are a few of your favorite herbs? Ooh, man. Well, yeah, herbs are great. I, I definitely like to draw my reader's attention to the power of herbs and spices to make food delicious. Oftentimes people will overuse sauces, which provide lots of empty calories usually, um, especially when you order them in like restaurants, when you have a dish that comes and it's primarily and it's drenched in sauce. Usually they're using a lot of unhealthy oils, added sugar and stuff like that. So learning how to season your food well, I think is crucially important. I mean, there, there are many herbs that I love. I mean, parsley, rosemary, herbs tend to be very concentrated sources of polyphenols. So these plant compounds that are generated as a defense mechanism that we talked about earlier, herbs are highly concentrated. And that's why herbs tend to have very strong, bitter flavors owed to these organic volatile compounds that that do seem to be beneficial to health. So there are, yeah, there are a number of really cool compounds. One of them is apigenin, which supports sleep and has been shown to strengthen synaptic connections. So the way that your neurons communicate with one another, they communicate at the synapse and apigenin has been shown to play a supportive role for syn synaptic strength, um, which I think is awesome. And you find that in its most concentrated source in herbs. Spices, I think, also really great to get to, to know how to wield a spice in the kitchen. Research shows that people who consume spicier food have reduced risk of early mortality by about 15%, which I think is owed to, it's, a, it's an observation, but so it's not necessarily a causal connection, but spices have other bioactive properties. So cinnamon also has been shown to have antihyperglycemic effects. Turmeric, we know, contains curcumin, which has an anti-inflammatory effect, also provides a compound called aromatic turmerone, which has been shown to boost neural stem cells. So good, good for supporting neuroplasticity, which is important for anybody concerned with brain health. And there are actually hundreds of spices used by humans around the world. The data that we have is on just a small handful of them. I've listed, listed some of the spices that we seem to have the most evidence on, cinnamon, turmeric, there's some on black pepper, but generally, any chance you get to, to use spices in the kitchen, it's definitely an opportunity worth seizing because they all provide different overlapping, but also unique benefits. And, and again, they also provide a really effective way of, of making your food palatable in a way that adds minimal, that has minimal calorie contribution, right? As opposed to sauces, which, which you know, the same can't be said for, for most sauces. But... One of the things that, that you're highlighting about Genius Kitchen, which I'm so proud of, is that it's a kitchen and wellness guide on top of being a cookbook. So it's not just a it's not just a cookbook, but I break down basically every one of these food components, and I provide my rationale in terms of why people should, you know, integrate more of various different food components into their diet and the food components that people should probably do their best to minimize. And uh, but yeah, herbs and spices are definitely I'm very bullish on those. So after you have your very spicy meal you might reach for mouthwash, which you say can harm our health. So what's wrong with mouthwash briefly? Yeah, this is a mind blowing one. And I love to talk about this. So 
I was talking earlier about, in the context of dark leafy greens, how when we consume certain dark leafy greens, like arugula, for example, arugula is rich in nitrates, so are beets. Actually, most people, when they think about dietary nitrates, they think about beets. We don't actually have, humans don't have the enzymes that are required to reduce nitrate to nitrite which is then able to enter the nitric oxide pathway. And so we rely on oral bacteria to do that conversion. There are a number of species that are responsible for it, namely Prevotella in the mouth, reduce nitrate, dietary nitrate to nitrite. And that nitrite is then able to enter the nitric oxide pathway. Also oral bacteria recycle nitric oxide. So via these two different mechanisms, oral bacteria play a very important role in helping us extract the most cardioprotective and neuroprotective benefits from our food. Nitric oxide also plays an important role in insulin signaling. So for people that are pre-diabetic or type two diabetic or just generally insulin resistant, nitric oxide plays an important role in helping to maintain uh, and improve insulin sensitivity. So it has all these beneficial effects, helping to lower blood pressure, keep, keep blood pressure in a normal healthy range, increase blood flow all throughout the body, and so many other things that, that, that nitric oxide is responsible for. So the problem with mouthwash is because we rely on oral bacteria for this pathway, you're basically nuking indiscriminately all of the bacteria that live in your oral microbiome with antiseptic mouthwash. And they've shown in observational studies that frequent use of antiseptic mouthwash two times a day or more is associated with a 50% increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes and a doubling, more than double the risk of developing hypertension, just from using frequently antiseptic mouthwash alone. So it's definitely worth, you know, not using antiseptic mouthwash on a frequent basis. A few times, you know, now and then is totally fine. The, the, the study didn't see an association for less frequent use. You know, if you're using it medically, I wouldn't be concerned, but it's definitely not something that you want to use on a frequent basis, because again, you're nuking your oral bacteria that are then you're handicapping the ability of your body to extract a cardioprotective and neuroprotective benefit from these foods. So if you're spending all this money going through all the work to eat beautiful, healthy foods like arugula, beets, and you're using mouthwash, you're basically shortchanging, you're, you're shortchanging the ability of your food to actually give you all of the benefits that it can. You know, I think oral health is fascinating. And as I think about trends, that's what I'm excited about. On a personal level, I recently had, I don't think I've shared this, I'll share it right now. I had a root canal from 20 years ago, and which I got redone 10 years ago. I got it extracted. So I am currently without a teeth and I've got floaters. These are Whoa. fake. It's a six month process. And everything I've read about oral health and, and look, we, we all believe that everything is connected within the body. It's not like your mouth and the oral, your oral health is completely separate from everything else. When I finished the process and I'm someone who does pretty extensive blood work with Frank Lipman, I am very curious to see what changes when I'm done with this process three months from now, does anything meaningfully change in my blood? I'm just like curious, like, you know, besides like feeling better and not feeling like something wrong with like my front tooth, like I'm fascinated. What are the consequences of having this done and essentially having a dead bad tooth in me for over a decade? Like, are, does it have implications on anything? 
I'm curious, any blood markers, anything. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. No, it's very interesting. I mean, I'm convinced that what's good for the, for oral health and the oral microbiome is going to be good for the body. You know, nature doesn't make mistakes where what's good for the body is somehow uniquely bad for the oral microbiome. So I think it's all, it is all meant to be aligned. And, um, I was, uh, I had this like moment where I was traveling. I was in Austin and I was at a drugstore. I'll just say that. And there was a billboard for a very common antiseptic mouthwash. And it was saying that type two diabetics are at, it was advertising this very popular antiseptic mouthwash that people, that millions and millions of people use. By the way, 40% of the US popular, or I'm sorry, 40 million people. It's either 40 million people or 40% of the US population uses mouthwash every single day, multiple times a day. So this is something that many people use, but the advertisement was saying that diabetics are at increased risk of periodontal disease, right? That's why you have to buy this oral antiseptic mouthwash. And I was like the irony, because it's this mouthwash that's probably contributing to their (laughs) type two diabetes. So to me, it was just like a light bulb moment where I felt like I really needed to communicate this on to a wider audience. And just to close the loop, like there was another study, you should also never use antiseptic mouthwash after a workout, because as I mentioned, it helps recycle nitric oxide and nitric oxide is boosted by exercise. So this research found that when subjects use antiseptic mouthwash after a workout, you actually blunt the antihypertensive effects of that workout. So insofar as exercise has the ability to reduce your blood pressure and keep it in a normal, healthy range, right? We all know that exercise is really important for, for helping keep our blood pressure healthy, right? I mentioned that there are meta-analyses showing us that exercise is as effective as drugs. You're basically negating the ability of your exercise to have an antihypertensive effect if you're using mouthwash after a workout. So stay away from antiseptic mouthwash. There are other mouthwashes on the market that are not antiseptic and those are fine but it's the ones that are primarily alcohol that you want to avoid in closing i'm curious what do you find interesting now in terms of trends you know you're in la you're going to erwan you travel you know we all know the same people i would say you're at the cutting edge of our space what do you think is interesting right now where you're saying to yourself huh you know this may be us likes this is kind of new and exciting so what's interesting to you Oh man. Well, I'm a, I'm such a nutrition junkie. It's literally like what I eat, breathe, sleep, think about Google. I'm constantly reading studies and I guess something that, that I found it's not a trend, but I've been thinking a lot about coffee recently. And uh, there was a study that came out that found that caffeine, which is found in coffee, obviously, but also other beverages acts like a natural PCSK9 inhibitor, which for people that don't know, PCSK9 inhibitors are actually, there's a new class of cholesterol lowering drugs on the market that are called PCSK9 inhibitors. And what they do is they increase the, unlike statins, which block the ability of your liver to synthesize cholesterol, PCSK9 inhibitors actually increase the efficiency of the liver at clearing cholesterol carrying lipoprotein, so LDL articles from the blood. And I think this is actually a very positive thing. And one of the reasons why we see fairly consistently that coffee consumption is associated with better cardiovascular health. There's a, there's now we have a a potential mechanism that coffee and specifically caffeine improves the efficiency of the liver at sucking up and recycling 
remnant LDL particles in circulation. So this has a two, this has two effects. It has the effect of overall lowering LDL levels, which I think for some people is a problem. And it also decreases the, it, it makes sure that the LDL lipoproteins that are in circulation are going to stay large, fluffy, and buoyant, as opposed to allowing them to get small and dense, which is their more atherogenic phenotype of the LDL particle. So, so yeah, so it's just a, it's a study that's made me, I guess, more of a fan of, I was already a pretty big fan of coffee, but, um, especially for certain people with certain genes, like carriers of the APOE4 allele who are thought to be not very effective LDL recyclers from the standpoint of the liver, that coffee might be a very beneficial functional food. If you can stand the, you know, if the, if you consume it responsibly, right, because it still has an adrenal effect, it still has a, it's still a stimulant, it can still impair sleep. But if you consume it responsibly for certain populations like APOE4 carriers who are more genetically prone to hypercholesterolemia for Alzheimer's disease, I think coffee is a very beneficial functional food. I will raise my black coffee to that study and end on that high note because you just made so many people happy. Max, <laughs> love the book, Genius Kitchen, some great nutrition advice and some unbelievably delicious recipes. Congratulations. Thank you, Jason. Honored to, uh, to have had this conversation with you.